Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we react to a heavy defeat for Liverpool at home against Real Madrid in the Champions League. Are they out? Will there be a twist to this tie? And what is the reason they're performing like this? Manchester City are held away from home in the Champions League. I guess a positive result to take back to the Etihad. But why isn't it clicking with Erling Haaland and co in their attack? We'll talk about an independent regulator in football, Javi Gracia in at Leeds United, and look ahead to the Carabao Cup final between Newcastle United and Manchester United. This is the game. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. I am Hugh Wizencroft. Lots for us to look uh, back at and ahead to this weekend um, because it's going to be, look, a big weekend at Wembley with the Carabao Cup final, but it's been a big week already in the Champions League. Liverpool will start there with a huge mountain to climb now um, just to keep their Champions League ambitions alive. They were torn apart having gone two goals up against Real Madrid at home in front of their own fans at Anfield. An embarrassment? Maybe, maybe not. You decide. Um, Real Madrid, of course, the holders. They beat Liverpool in last season's final, became the first side to score five goals at Anfield in Europe despite going two goals down and made a dream start to the last 16 tie. Liverpool conceding five goals in Europe at Anfield for the first time. Um and it doesn't really, it, it's weird. It, it doesn't feel like that because it was such a crazy game, Gregor. You know, Liverpool go two goals up and you just don't see it coming. You think, wow, Real Madrid have fallen off. And the response, the, if you like, tactical decision not to change your approach from Carlo Ancelotti paid dividends. Um, and it was remarkable to see the Real Madrid comeback. Yeah, as you say, it was, Liverpool flew out the traps and you thought this this looks like it's going to be one of those special Anfield nights. Um, uh, they were, you know, I think after watching this game, I think that Liverpool have, it's kind of reinforced that Liverpool have, are in the midst of a bit of an identity crisis. This, it was almost like Liverpool of old with that level of sort of freewheeling intensity and kind of, it's so, it's the, the game's so open and so, uh, so intense that that was what that was Liverpool's kind of identity a, a few years ago, and then in the last eighteen months or so, they've tried to to develop that and exert more control. But the problem is they're kind of in the midst of of those two identities now. They don't they're not really they're not as good as the team that 
had Sadio Mane and, and Pete Firmino up front pressing the hell out of the opposition and they don't have a midfield that's able to exert enough control and dominate a game against the best teams in Europe and even the best teams in the Premier League now. So it, it just kind of drummed home how how big a, a kind of a hole Liverpool are in now and that it seems that they need quite a significant overhaul. And it was a remarkable game. They, As I say, it, it looked very much like Liverpool were going to be uh, you know, this was going to be a memorable night at Anfield, and then Real Madrid just. There's very few teams who can who can go two 0 down at Anfield and and not panic in the slightest, and just be kind of confident that they can they can find the openings and expose the the space that Liverpool leave. Um, and there's very few teams that will go two 0 up against Real Madrid and still continue to play with both fullbacks high and wide. Uh, you know, still trying to 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 press and probe and leaving huge spaces at the back, and ultimately it made for an absolute classic, but uh, a really humbling night for Liverpool in the end. And Tom, it kind of, it, I think Gregor's right, underlined many of the issues at Liverpool at the moment. That their issues were exposed to the world, though. For those of us, uh, or for those people that maybe haven't watched their games intricately in the Premier League. Um, it, it, you know, it, it, it was a familiar story in terms of some of their worst performances. Defensively, not quite at it. Intensity, you know, was there for a period, but they just couldn't, you know, last through the game. And um, and then the quality of Real Madrid just shone through. Yeah, I think we, we've seen this performance from Liverpool a, a fair few times in, in recent months. You know, I mean, just very open uh, defensively through midfield, can be cut through too easily. And when you give opportunities like that to teams like, you know, Brighton and Brentford, you know, they will take some of their chances. You give those opportunities to, to Real Madrid, they'll take five of them. You know, that's that's the difference. You know, you give people like Vinicius and Benzema that kind of space um, and they will punish you. I, mean, I, I think there was a, I, I found it interesting as well looking at these two teams because it was almost as though you're looking at two very recently iconic squads and one of the clubs has successive, successfully, or at least partially successfully, because, you know, Real Madrid have enduring a little bit of a bumpy season in La Liga. But you can see there what the plan is. You know, over the last four or five years, they have gradually drip-fed new signings into that team. You know, you have to remember that this is no longer the team of Ramos and Varane and Casemiro and uh, even Cruz wasn't playing. You know, they've they've gradually renovated that side by signing players like Camavinga, Chuameni, uh, David, David Alaba, uh, Militao, you know, all these kind of players who, who have gradually replaced that side. And yet it still feels like the essence of that Real Madrid, <clears throat> excuse me, the essence of that Real Madrid squad is, is still alive and it's still there. You know, we, it feels like this team is almost the same, but actually it, it's extremely different now. Whereas Liverpool haven't managed that transition well. You know, I think, you know, they're, they're now suddenly at a period where they feel like they have to have a summer where they clear out seven or eight players and bring in five or six players. And ultimately that's not how you manage um, the the transition from a from a very very good team, which is what they were a couple of years ago, to a to another good team. Um, and for me, it was it was interesting to see these these two sides up against each other. Uh, one team still very much alive and kicking, very much in contention. I think is very much obviously a contender again to win the tournament. And Liverpool, they just aren't that right now. Ian, uh, your reflections on both teams and where they are at the moment, because. 
you know, a lot was said about Real Madrid maybe not being at the same level that they were. Obviously, not quite having as bad a season as Liverpool are at the moment. And, um, you know, for those that, that said it's going to be a season of transition for Liverpool at the start of the campaign, and, and I think, you know, those views were kind of rubbish. Oh, it's Liverpool under Jurgen Klopp. They'll find a way. They've signed Darwin Nunez and there's so much to be excited about. Um you know, they've been brought back down to reality in a, in a very harsh way over the course of the season. Um, what, what did you make of the whole 90 minutes? Well, well, it was it was it was a terrific watch, wasn't it? Um, you know, absolute end to end first half. And then and then a display of the, the class of those Madrid players who we know are genuinely uh, world class. Um, I, I agree with 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 Tom in terms of managing transition um, was a far better display of, of how Madrid have gone about it. At, at the same time, um, as Carlo Ancelotti pointed out, that uh, the key to not panicking, the key for retaining that belief that 2-0 down uh, wasn't a, wasn't an insurmountable uh, setback were, were the veterans at Modric outstanding. I mean, we, we seem to devote quite a lot of podcasts to saying how wonderful Modric is, but, but he was, he was extraordinary again. Um, and, and Benzema, and obviously Vinicius is in an absolute crest of a wave in terms of his, his form. Um, so in fact, there was quite a lot about transition in the lead up to the game, partly because, because Modric was chosen to speak to people and, you know, he, there is a, there's a small issue about whether he gets, um, renewed into what will be his 39th year, I think. Um, uh, but yeah, they, you know, they, 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 they absolutely managed to do what, what they do against a lot of Premier League teams now. And, and Ancelotti was interesting. He said at 2 0 down, he thought of the Manchester City uh, semi final last season when again there was a, a, a similar deficit. Um, and 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 hope that they would do the same. I mean, that's that's now PSG, Chelsea, Manchester City, and and Liverpool halfway through this tie, where there have been astonishing comebacks. It's um, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's now almost the expectation that M- Madrid will will come back from behind and 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 be cool, calm, and absolutely ruthless about it. Just on Modric, the, there was a moment in the second half where. The ball was wrapped into him in midfield, and he played this little. It was it was it was everything and nothing at the same time. It's just a little layoff with outside of his right foot to Camavinga, just a little cushion layoff. That I think they just gone five two up, and it was just it was just a moment of kind of. It was seared into my memory watching this game that kind of underlined that he is someone who is on a different level to anyone. Really, technically, it's it was extraordinary. He's and that when when Real Madrid, as Ian was saying there, when when they do face these moments of adversity, adversity, he he's the one who kind of his 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 uh, his calmness in possession, his ability to just kind of manipulate the ball and find space and keep it and keep keep it moving and just play so sort of you know effortless effortlessly. Um, I think that kind of almost reasserts Real Madrid. It kind of it gives them it gives them confidence and belief again. That's how they kind of find their foothold in the game, and he's done it for so long now. And as Ian says, it's just remarkable that he's if he's going to be playing for Real Madrid going into his uh, at the age of thirty nine, and he still looks 
like one of the best midfielders on the planet. Um, and when you contrast that, again, just contrast that to Liverpool's midfield, Fabinho, I don't know how he lasted the 90 minutes. Uh, Henderson looks greatly diminished this year. Um, and Bajatic, he, you know, he's he's been promising. He's only just turned 18 and he's I'm sure he's got a big future ahead of him. But this was, it was quite a difficult night for him as well. So just that is where Liverpool... Like we, we can speak about holes. There's problems in terms of the pressing up front. There's problems about who partners Van Dijk, and there has been problems about Van Dijk himself. Again, Gomez. I'm not sure how like he. Well, he didn't last the, the 90 minutes, and and he was put out of his misery because he had an awful night. But midfield, without question, is the place that Liverpool have to sign several players. Like they, if they want to be the team that that exerts control, the way that. Real Madrid do, or the way that Manchester City do, or the way that the best teams in Europe do, then they they really don't have any players apart from Thiago, who's never fit, that fit that mould. Tom, Tom, what do you think about what Gregor has to say there? Um, do, they, do you agree with Gregor that they have to totally revamp the midfield, or do you see some of the argument that they're totally fatigued, having played in every match they could have possibly played in last season? I think, in a way, those issues are also a little bit linked. I mean, you know, some of the players have been around for a long time. Someone like Jordan Henderson, for example, is probably the sort of player you don't want to necessarily be relying on right now to be playing every week, you know. Um, equally, I think, you know, in some ways, these, there are some players who have, who have been there a while and haven't really stepped up. You know, Navigata, for example, just hasn't hasn't really delivered on what everyone thought he might be. Um, I think they basically haven't really made enough signings quickly enough in that area. I mean, you know, they're, they're relying on three or four players week in, week out, and and none of them are really really doing enough. I mean, this this Liverpool team relies on energy, it relies on, on intensity, it relies on, um, you know, high press. That's the way Klopp likes to play. And if you don't have the players who can deliver that, then, you know, the whole thing crumbles down very quickly. I, I mean, this game, I think, really came at a bad time for Liverpool because... We were all sort of thinking after the the Everton win and the Newcastle win that maybe they were just sort of starting to get a bit of momentum again, a bit of belief, and then you know along come Real Madrid and and, and put five past you, and suddenly the whole season looks like it's uh, in tatters again. Um, you know, I think it's Crystal Palace this weekend, um, which is a, you know, a difficult place for them to go, and I, I think you know they've basically had the wind taken out of their sails just as they were getting going again. Gregor, I just wanted to um, ask you about the, the Liverpool defence. I know you mentioned the midfield. What did you make of their performance? I, I guess a lot of fans pointing at Joe Gomez's performance in particular as being one of the key issues. There were un uncharacteristic mistakes, obviously, by Alisson. Yes, we saw a huge clangor from Thibaut Courtois at the other end as well, which kind of balanced things out um, on the evening. But... Um, is there recruitment to do in that area too? Is Virgil van Dijk what he used to be? Um, you know, we, we've, we've, I guess, spoken ad nauseum about Trent Alexander-Arnold at times. Um, even Robbo, Andrew Robertson's not been at his glorious best. How big a, a concern would that be if you were a Liverpool fan? Undoubtedly, uh, one or two centre-halves are needed. Gomez looks to me like a player who's... He's dreadfully short on confidence. He looks like he's kind of a little bit frenzied in his play even. And I'd actually say Alexander-Arnold now, when he's facing a winger, he also looks scared. He's often, he often finds his body so square. Like, 
He's just trying to stand the player up. And you don't, the last thing you want to be against someone like Vinicius Junior is square and kind of having to turn one way or the other. And, you, you know, you're giving them a head start as well. And there were a couple of times in the first half where he did that and he was just, he was just kind of blitzed. Um, Van Dyke, look, there's been a lot of conversation about he's not been the same player since he came back from injury. Uh, I thought he was he was the best of their back four uh, on the night, and since he's come back from his his little injury recently, he's he's been quite good. Um, and Robertson still had the odd moment. I mean, his slide tackle in the first half was remarkable. The kind of the ball that was fizzed across the six yard box, and uh, I think it was Rodrigo at the back post and. Um, you know, he showed all the kind of energy and intensity. But the biggest thing is that they're exposed far more frequently. And, um, you know, that's to do with the issues that we've just discussed in terms of they're not, they're not the same kind of unit in terms of the front three and the way that Sadio Mane and Firmino at his peak were, and along with Salah, they were just, they were so formidable. Uh, they kind of sniffed out opportunities to pounce and... And then behind them, they had Wijnaldum and, you know, Fabinho when he seemed... Fabinho looked like his legs have gone. I had to check his age and he's 29. Like, it's not that. <laughs> it's something else that's not, that's, that's not right with Fabinho. And, you know, Henderson's just not looking like the same player either. So they don't have the same energy behind them now. And that, as, you know, as Tom's alluded to, as Paul Joyce has written today in the, in the Times, it's, it's kind of like a fallen... You know, if one thing crumbles, it's like a falling pack of cards, and and that's what's leaving Liverpool's defence woefully exposed, and that's not going to help their confidence either. They're having to do far far more defensively, far more often, and and they're they're being found wanting. So undoubtedly, certainly in the central defensive area, they need one signing at, at least uh, to play alongside Van Dijk. I still believe Van Dijk is, you know, will will we will come back to something approaching his, his best form. Um, and even if he doesn't, he's still a hell of a player in the Premier League and in the Champions League. But alongside him just now, he, he there is no partner. And as, again, as Paul Joyce referenced in his piece today, you look think back to when uh, Liverpool last had a, like a major blip during the, the pandemic, when they kind of just about scraped a place in the Champions League. And Jurgen Klopp was playing midfielders in the back at the back. Like he, it took him a long time to play his kind of his second and third choice centre halves rather than playing midfielders in defence, playing Fabinho. So that's been a problem area for a while, I think, alongside Van Dijk, and and that's not changed. And it was woefully exposed here. Ian, how surprised um, will the Spaniards be by this result? Um, is it just that Real Madrid have so much? Um, quality have proven themselves last season in particular in coming from behind um, that, that maybe, it, you know, we're not too surprised by it and they won't be in Spain. And the other thing is, of course, you know, at times, Benzema, Modric, who we mentioned already, Vinicius Jr., you know, they're a joy to watch. They couldn't really be stopped at times. Um, and they just had a really, really good night um, because, I, I, you know, a lot of people were saying the Champions League is wide open. And um, on on that performance away at Anfield, you'd have to say that you got to look strongly at Real Madrid. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, it, it, it it's clearly a a, a, a scoreline for the ages, given given the venue. So you know, there's a fair amount of awe, um, especially from Madridistas uh, about that. Um, but just on the you know on the 
on the fatigue point, I mean, yes, Liverpool show all sorts of symptoms of being tired from a very, very exerting uh, last season. Um, Madrid have also been very, very busy, you know, because you're as as Champions League holders, you have to go to various other events. Um, and they really, you know, the, and Carlo Ancelotti at times, in his discreet way, has has pointed this out and and you know alerted the game, the, the wider game, to the the problem of asking so much of players. Benzema has has been really in and out of the, the side this season. So. Um, it, such an emphatic performance, given that background and given their recent stumbles domestically, uh, th- there was a fair amount of surprise. But you know, th- there is it, it's such a script now, isn't it? The 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 Real Madrid remontada, as they call it, the comeback in European games, um, and it you know it it does generate this deep well of confidence that um, you fall behind. There's plenty of time. You, you you stick to the game plan. There are a few adjustments by Ancelotti. He he moved Fede Valverde um, across from from um, right to left, and that made a difference. But but yeah, you know they 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 have this they have this instinct for recovery, and of course you know they have they have genuine match winners. Uh, Vinicius above all. Rodrigo also had a fine game, and and you know they had they had the better coach on the night. Which um, you know, Ancelotti stuck to his guns. He knew what he wanted to do. He wanted an open game. Um, he he made the midfield adjustment, and 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 it all worked beautifully from there. I, I would ask you all if this tie is over, but I think it's probably going to be easier to ask if any of you think the tie isn't over. Silence is deafening. Okay, well, so we well, all agree. Well, <laughs> well, presumably, out of habit, Madrid will concede the first two goals and put <laughs> in suspense, and then, um, uh, and then, and then clean it up towards the end. Um, yeah, I, w- I would have thought it's over, but you know, there's there's plenty there's plenty in the memory bank. There's 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 uh, Ancelotti very personally knows what it is to be uh, three goals ahead against Liverpool in a major European match. Um, and for things to go awry after that, um, and you know, there's 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 the great comeback against Barcelona in the semi final in 2019. That's that you know Liverpool and Klopp could rouse themselves with. But uh, yes, I suspect it's over. I think the thing this time, obviously, is it's Liverpool is a different team. They're not at Anfield in the second leg. Um, I just yeah, I always get to this point at the time of the year, and I think oh Real Madrid. Look quite good, and I sort of check the the odds uh, for who you know Champions League winner, and see that surprise that Real Madrid is sort of third or fourth favourite behind Man City or Bayern or PSG or something. And I sort of think, yeah, probably that's right. Real Madrid aren't gonna they can't win it again for the sort of sixth time in a row or whatever. And then of course they uh, they always go on and win the Champions League. That's just uh, that is just how it works. So we never learn. We need to stop them. They need to be stopped, OK? This can't keep happening. You can't keep going two goals down against giants of European football and still making it through anyway. Uh, it looks like they will at this point in time. And we'll have egg on our faces uh, if Liverpool can mount one of those incredible comebacks. Uh, anyway, let's move on to one of the other British sides in action in the Champions League this week. And again, an, again, an all-too-familiar story for a Premier League side. Manchester City this time around. Pep Guardiola's side failing to turn dominance into goals 
um, and more importantly, victory as they were held to a draw by RB Leipzig in the first leg uh, of their Champions League last 16 tie in Germany. City, of course, wanting uh, to end that wait for a first Champions League trophy. They, they look well-placed to make it through. You know, we can't hammer them too much. It's a draw away from home in the first leg of a Champions League tie. Um, but Gregor, I, I do think they kind of need to snap out of this pattern. Um, maybe if they're to, you know, reach those wider aspirations of a Champions League title, of this season's Premier League title, because some weeks they score for fun, other weeks they kind of seem blunt, despite, you know, really controlling the match. And that is a slight concern from where I'm sitting anyway. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, as, as dominant as they were in the first half, they didn't fashion that many clear-cut opportunities. There were a few, a couple from set pieces, and the goal was from a, a Leipzig mistake. Um, yeah, it was, it was very, it was clinically kind of capitalised on Gundogan, really crafty little kind of, it was almost a little flick uh, through the defender's leg to so Mares could run onto it and finish first time. Um, but you're right, they're not, they aren't really as much as they were, they were dominant in terms of possession, uh, you know, moving the ball, some really nice switches of play and getting Grealish on the ball or Mares on the ball or Kyle Walker who was a bit more advanced. There was a bit of a change of shape too, and and the Aki was kind of the left back and. Uh, but tucking in a little bit more, and Walker was far more advanced on the right, uh, and Walker was quite dangerous in the first half. Um, but as you say, they didn't really craft that many openings, and and again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but Haaland, I don't, I don't think it's sustainable. I just don't think that a player of Haaland's, although he's talk, he's spoken about being okay, having he had twenty touches in this game, uh, he's spoken about as long as he's getting the goals. He's, he's happy. I don't see how a player of Allen's ability can be happy having 20 touches in a game. And you saw actually in the second half in this game, his frustration starting to come to the boil a little bit, you know, throwing his arms around a little bit, making runs, not getting the ball. But that's just like, that's, that seems to be a, a running theme of this, of this season for City. Um, and they still had chances even after the equaliser to, to win the game. So, um, and look, Pep Guardiola was quite spiky in his post-match interviews, saying, look, I know everyone basically expects us to win 4 or 5-0, but Leipzig are a good team. And they showed they were, they showed a bit more of what they're capable of, Leipzig, in the second half, far, far you know, much improved in the second half. Um, and City still, you've got to say, going back to Etihad, won all the scoreline, will, will be overwhelming favourites to go through. Um, Tom, what do you make of, of what Gregor had to say just about generally Manchester City? Um, yeah, I, 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 well, maybe what I had to say, just generally Manchester City not converting dominance into goals and whether you think there will be a wider issue there throughout the season. I think this match was more worrying than the match last weekend against Nottingham Forest. I think if you watched that match against Forest, you sort of thought that this is just a one of those freak matches, you know, where you have four or five really, really good chances. Haaland obviously hit that one against the bar and then blazed it over. It just sort of felt like one of those matches where it was a bit of a one-off. Um, whereas I think last night City had control, but as Gregor says, didn't really create that much. You know, I don't think they can come away from that thinking, oh, we should have scored two or three goals there. 
And when City aren't creating chances, that's obviously a lot more of a worry than when they're creating lots and, you know, it's just not not going in for them. I, mean, I think Guardiola increasingly, you know, he in this game particularly, I think he wanted to come away with the tie still alive. You know, I think he realised that in a, in a tight week um, away, uh, Leipzig, against a team he knows are very good when the, when the game becomes very open. This really sort of tapped into Guardiola's uh, more cautious instincts. Let's sort of make sure that we're very much uh, compact, that we have the ball a lot, that we don't allow them to dictate the pace of the game. You know, and, and you know, Guardiola calls it control. I think, you know, you, we could also say this is a, this was a cautious approach. You know, Guardiola was, was very much trying to shut this game down and get it back to the second leg with City very much still intact. And I guess... In that regard, he was successful. I, I personally think, you know, they're still very much in control of this tie. I don't expect them not to win the second leg. Um, but I think the wider point does still stand. that There is a, a slight um, congealing of, of City's creativity at the moment. And uh, whether Haaland is, is one of the reasons for that, obviously, is up for discussion. Um, but, uh, yeah, as I say, I think this was a more concerning performance than the one uh, even against Forest last weekend. Uh, Ian, very quickly, I mean, I guess uh, taking you back to another of Gregor's points, um, the disconnection with Haaland, what do you make of, of, I guess, how he fits into this City team? Because I think I agree with Gregor, you know, he he is happy scoring goals. He can't be happy with this, though. Um, You know, what he wants from the rest of the team in terms of supplying him, he doesn't seem to usually get. Uh, yes, and and uh, it, it, you can see that it's it's. Uh, I mean, you know, let, let's let's not forget the statistics, which are astonishing. Um, you know, there's it, we have to be very careful when we use the word problem and Holland in the same uh, sentence. Um, but but you can see a situation where the uh, you know the drying up of of opportunities touches leads to haste, frustration, and and you know he's always been a real sort of momentum uh, footballer you know he's young he's very very hungry and eager um and you know the the taps have been turned on for goals ever since ever since he was a boy um and, and there was a there was there was one there was one unhollandesque miss wasn't there when he when he dragged it wide and and you just it's it's easy to interpret that as as a guy who's just getting a little bit impatient and and you know just a little bit anxious um so yeah i mean you know he 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 would he would be worried about that and i agree with gregor you know that the, while saying that you know it doesn't uh doesn't matter how many touches i get um you know as long as uh, as long as you know i keep getting opportunities to score fairly regularly is fine i you know, I, I agree with gregor that there there would be some concern at, at feeling for long periods less involved with 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 what Manchester City do very very well and and, and feeling somehow outside it um but you know I do, he's 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 going to he's going to finish the season with some absolutely magnificent uh figures and you know with a good chance of a trophy as well it's right we're not, like Don's questioning is uh his goal record, he's out, you know, his output and the ridiculous number of goals he scored this season. All I'm saying is it. I was even reminded before the game they were showing some footage of his time at uh, RB Salzburg, and you know, I've written pieces in the past analysing him when you kind of watched all his footage from from 
from his time there and and uh, at Dortmund and so, you know t- there was times where he would kind of drop deep and then run at players and there was times where he would kind of pick up the ball in the channels and and it was devastating like you just don't really see a great deal of that now because he has to be the the focal point the the kind of you know the most advanced player for City and uh, he just looks quite isolated and look and I think while he's scoring goals, this will not be a problem. When and and this, we're only talking about going a couple of games without scoring a goal here and there, so it's not a big problem. It's just for him personally, I don't see that playing in this city team this way is sustainable as something he will want to continue doing. Even if he scored thirty-five goals this season, I think he would finish it and look look and think there were so many games where I w- there was so much wasted energy. And I know, I know the main thing he wants to do is score goals. He's not going to look back and be kind of angry with the season. I'm not, I'm not stupid, but there will be. There's big swathes of the season and big swathes of games where he scored, <laughs> where he scored two or three goals, where there is so much wasted energy, and he feels like uh, a, a kind of man, an, an isolated, uh, you know, completely disjointed from the team. Um, and I think he started to look frustrated last night with that. Is it some way, Gregor, I don't know what you think about this, but when you sort of have a player who's young playing for a team that is maybe slightly uh, less distinguished, often we sort of see players are doing everything. You know, They're running around the pitch, they're playing in every position, they're sort of dominant in every single area. I sort of think back just off the top of my head, someone like Rooney, for example, at Everton, uh, Torres, even Atletico, uh, Bale, for example, at Spurs, you know, they sort of, they realise they are very much the outstanding player in the team and therefore they're given the freedom and they have the confidence to do everything. Is it perhaps just a sort of a natural progression that when you join a side like City, for example, where there are, you know, countless other world-class players, even if they're not quite in your class of, of talent, that you have to suddenly adapt, your own role becomes slightly narrower, you're no longer the sort of, you know, do everything, uh, be everywhere, player on the side. I mean, maybe that is just sort of, you know, part of that process of playing for a great team. I don't know. I mean, it just uh, it strikes me that maybe that is just what happens to sort of the best players when they join really, really good clubs. Absolutely, but we're going from one one extreme to another here. You know, such as you say, a player who was kind of such a standout um, to someone who has having very little involvement. Look, I don't want to labour on this too, because as I said, his goal scoring record has been ridiculous and I'm sure he'll finish the season with with an obscene number of goals. And it might even take City to the to the Premier League title and you know <laughs> who knows, maybe the Champions League too, and then all of this will be forgotten. But you you can unquestionably see frustration now. Um and obviously the frustration is more pronounced and more obvious when he's not scoring the goals. But I think it's there anyway. I don't. I, I mean, I just don't see how a player touching the ball 20-odd times, 30 times even, on a good day sometimes in the Premier League now, uh, can be that, that content, to be honest. It's been interesting to see him pop up deeper and also wider than he was in sort of the first half of the season at Manchester City when he predominantly played straight through the middle. Um, He he tries to get involved a little bit more, but obviously that is taking him away from the goal-scoring area. Um, And it'll be interesting to see if Manchester City do redress that. Um, I've noticed Jack Grealish, I think they picked this up after the game as well, is playing quicker 
fewer touches, which I, I find to be interesting, looks for players earlier and looks for a one-two, looks to run beyond them much more often. And he's kind of basically facing the goal more centrally, getting shots off more often now. Um, to the byline less, but you know, coming in on his right foot and getting shots off more often, which is important for him. He, he well, he uh, yeah, maybe this links into Haaland as well. He is settling into Manchester City style a lot more. Not a natural goal scorer though, so uh, he needs to start putting the ball in the back of the net if he's going to be, you know, the player that has these opportunities. Because we see Riyad Mahrez on the other side, he scores the goal, but often chips in with goals when he plays uh, from the right hand side. Grealish would need to do the same on the other. Um, but certainly looking a better player in a Manchester City shirt. We can't really labour too much on this game. In my heart of hearts, though, I think it was a foul from Josko Gvardiol on, on Ruben Diaz for the equaliser. But it's Manchester City, so no one says anything about that. I think the City fans uh, will be crying anyway. They've got a good opportunity still of going through uh, to the knockout stages with a home leg to come. Very quickly, final word on the Champions League, Ian Hawkey. How seriously do we take Napoli? They beat Eintracht Frankfurt two goals to nil away from home. Uh, can they do it? Um, it, it? Yes, for 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 two reasons. I do think there's there's enough there's enough to believe that that this this might be a year where we get a slightly less expected uh, finalist at least. Um, and I mean, it's you know, it, it, it's. It's there is a you know there's an assumption that there will be a big Premier League contingent in the next round, but you know if you actually look at it, uh, that's three defeats for the Premier League teams in the first legs um, and a draw. So you know there is a scenario where one Leipzig goal and 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 some clean sheets elsewhere um, ends the Premier League interest. I think that's not going to happen, but um, but uh, what it does mean is I, I think I think there's a less of a heavyweight juggernaut from the Premier League than usual involved, which does make it um, create openings for, you know, for, for alternative uh, candidates. Uh, Real Madrid are still flawed, but they were flawed last year. Um, so, you know, I think we can, we can expect them to be significant contenders. Um, Paris Saint-Germain are halfway out from, from this leg. So, all that, but Napoli also are very, very good, and you know have this uh, tremendous momentum. Um, they have the comfort of a league which is pretty much tied up, so they can rest and rotate. And it, they've got plenty of energy. They're, they're 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 lovely to watch. It was a nice game against Frankfurt, who who did suffer for having a man sent off. But um, uh, yeah, you would expect Napoli to go through quite comfortably from this, and and if they if they keep their key players fit and keep their confidence so high, yes, why not? Okay, that's the Champions League for this week wrapped up. Thank you, Ian. Uh, more still to come. We'll talk Leeds United. We'll talk independent regulator. And of course, look ahead to the Carabao Cup final at Wembley. Remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, rate us, leave us a review. And of course, make sure you're subscribed. Okay, let's look at some of the important stories of the week. Leeds United agreeing terms with the former Watford boss, Javi Gracia, to replace Jesse Mast as manager. He, of course, was sacked in early February. And, and Leeds basically haven't been able to recruit, you know, 
any of their first several choices. In the end, it's the Spaniard Gracia who took Watford to the FA Cup final in 2019. He managed Valencia after that and Qatari club Al Sad leads 19th in the Premier League and they host the bottom club in a huge game at the weekend against Southampton. Um, but Gracia has only been appointed on a flexible contract, which kind of underlines where the search for a new boss uh, would be. Um, he will be in charge of that game, but subject at the moment to necessary work permissions. I think that will be fine. Um, Ian, I'll start with you on this. Is this a good managerial decision from Leeds United? Um, I think it. I think it is probably a decent uh, decision following several bad ones. Um, so uh, you know, he is he is a stopgap. He is, um, he is, as you say, he's well down the queue of ideal candidates because they they have rather mismanaged the uh, replacing of Jesse Marsh. And you know, he he does he does tick some important uh, boxes. Um, a history of 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 mismanaged clubs. Yes, absolutely. You know, he's been at Valencia, as you mentioned, and and uh, and his his experience at Watford was was certainly um, interesting in terms of high managerial uh, turnover. Um, he knows the Premier League. He knows relegation scraps. He's a he's he's a very competent, um, quite personable guy. So I I think he'll get his sleeves rolled up. I think he'll build good, important relationships, and I think he'll be studious and methodical. Um, and he will have a look at uh, what leads do well, and I think he will maximise that. But, um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it, it, it'll be a bit belt and braces from here on. But, but yeah, he, he's a good coach. Javi Gracia is really interesting. I just think you look at his career, like I'm reading his list here, and, you know, all the players who, who have played under him, Always say that he's a he, he they, they, you know ring, sing his praises and say he's a lovely lovely guy to work with, very tactically astute, you know, very keen on all the details. And yet you look at his list of of jobs, you know, Al Sad one year, Valencia one year, Watford one year, Ruben Gazan one year, Malaga two years, Osasuna one year. I mean, it goes on and on. And you have to sort of say, how can you marry these two things? Where he's a very popular coach, very highly rated among kind of players and in, in kind of circles of of uh you know clubs and yet he's never really stuck around longer than a, than a very short period of time as ian says there are mitigating circumstances in some of those places particularly valencia and watford as well um but i'd really like to see him stick around somewhere so that we can all kind of know really is javi gracia a good manager or not you know it'd be great to see him really get a good go at leeds but um i suspect given the contract he's on this might be another short-term appointment I mean, having said that, he's actually he's twenty months at Watford make him the longest serving coach of the the Pozzo era. <laughs> so I know that's not a long time, but it is in terms of Watford and and he, you know, I think he finished, I think they finished eleventh in his in his second season there, and obviously the FA Cup finals as mentioned. I think he's got the second highest points per game uh, ratio of uh, the Premier League era of that of that of the Pozzo era as well. Um, yeah, like, well, still kind of acknowledging that this is an appointment that underlines how much of a mess Leeds have made of this whole managerial change. I still think it's actually not bad. He's got Premier League experience, as Tom said. He's some of the players, generally speaking, have always had good things to say, say about. He's calm. He's always He always exuded calm on this kind of touchline. And 
and I think he's quite flexible too, so and, and tactically flexible. So I think it's not bad in the position that Leeds have found themselves in, which was a position of their own making. It's not a bad appointment. Certainly must not lose at the weekend versus Southampton. Is it? Is it must win, Tom? I think it's a bit early to be saying must win, um, but uh, for sure it's a huge game. You know, two clubs who are really in a mess at the moment, um, desperate for some kind of uh, uplift um, with the fans as well. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge game for both teams, no doubt about that. Gregor, you want to call it must win, don't you? Has he got his work per- work permit yet? That's the first thing. I'm... Mm. <laughs> he has, yeah. Well, no, I'm assuming he will, um, but okay, yeah, we don't okay. know. Um, no, yeah, I'm, I'm with Tom. I, I don't think we can call it must win yet. Leeds are, Leeds are, have been on the slide. They've been pretty abject recently, um, but he's not had a great deal of time yet. And um, yeah, as I say, as far as I know, there's still some question mark about him being on the touchline. Um, but he needs to, he needs to enact an uplift fairly, pro, like fairly swiftly. Um, and it would certainly be a good place to start against Southampton. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com We've got some big news domestically. Um, a white paper presented in Parliament today for a new independent regulator in English football um, that is designed to make sure clubs are sustainably run after a fan-led government review. It's actually been some time in the making. Um, the early news um, leaked to the newspapers is that the regulator will implement a licensing system for all clubs from the Premier League down to the National League, and that system will force clubs to prove their business models are financially sound and that they have good corporate governance before they are allowed to compete, which will be pretty interesting. Um, Clubs also required to seek regulatory approval for any sale or change of stadium, which we've seen a number of owners do um, up and down the leagues, really. Um, Elsewhere, some things being proposed. Obviously, a big one, stopping English clubs from joining closed shop competitions 
i.e. the European Super League, at least in its previous incarnation, uh, which are judged to harm the domestic game, preventing a repeat of the financial failings seen at numerous clubs, notably Berry in Macclesfield, uh, more stringent owners and directors test, um, giving fans the power to stop owners changing a club's name, badge and traditional kit colours and ensuring, and this is a big one, a fairer distribution of money filtering down the English football pyramid from the Premier League. Um, so I, I guess the raft of propositions here, what exactly um, will be enacted? We are yet to find out. But clearly, big changes on the way for the way that we have seen English football run. Um, is this a positive thing? I think that's a big one. And Ian, actually, it's quite interesting to have you here because I know that you obviously cover a lot of the, the leagues elsewhere in Europe um, as to whether this will make English football better in terms of, and this is the big concern, particularly Premier League clubs, um, you know, will it reduce our power basis? You know, what we've taken so long to build in European football, are we almost, you know, is this football's Brexit? Are we, uh, you know, will we be living like Slovenia soon? I mean, that's a weird way to phrase it, but that's what's apparently happening because of Brexit. So, you know, is our football going to be reduced as well? Um, I, I think probably the, the the simple answer to that is no, because um, I, uh, I I I think we've seen the teeth of of this independent regular steadily blunted as um as as the idea and as the the legislation is being um developed um I, I i you know i also think from a more general governmental point of view particularly it's at least under the, the current dispensation um there is an appreciation that um the premier league particularly is quite an important uh, national export and uh and blunting that would be handled quite carefully whether that's a good thing or not is 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 another debate um so yeah so i think you know i think um given that we that we can't see very very sharp teeth in important areas in this uh no i don't i don't think um i don't think we're going to be losing our clubs are going to be losing to the clubs from the slovenian league in the early rounds of the europa conference league anytime soon <laughs> What's your reaction, Tom? What's your reaction to all of it? Um, is it needed, in your opinion? And um, do you see in these suggestions that the right things are being addressed? I think it was definitely needed. The question is, is it overdue? Is it too late, essentially? I mean, I think it's all very well sort of talking about more stringent uh, tests for owners. But, you know, we've seen not just in the Premier League, you know, countless clubs destroyed by by irresponsible owners you know over the, over the past decade or two um you know I mean, we talk a lot about manchester city and that is one but there are there are plenty of other teams who have, who have you know come into much much more trouble than than that you know as well so you know i i guess equally we can't complain about that you know it's better late than never i suppose um i was interested particularly in the financial package that might be on offer to the to the rest of the football league um, interesting that the regulator has sort of said basically that the Premier League um the Football League, in my understanding, have to sort of negotiate this themselves um, and that the FL is, you know, is pushing for a sort of 75-25 split on on the kind of Premier League's uh, annual TV money. But the Premier League is, is I think, quite far away from, from that. So it'll be interesting to see what that ends up 
uh, coming out as I guess the Premier League has to be a bit careful because ultimately the the regulator is sort of the idea is the regulator will intervene if an agreement can't be found. So then maybe the Premier League will sort of want to find some kind of agreement that, that suits um, rather than refer it to a kind of random arbitration process. Um, I think this is this is definitely a good thing overall. Broad broad strokes. I think this is a it's much needed for sure. I think it's a very interesting development in terms of the European Super League. Um, and I'm guessing you no know, Real Madrid and Barcelona will absolutely not welcome this. Um, whereas La Liga and, and Syria, for example, will be very keen and, and, and happy to see that, that the, the European Super League project has, has taken another dent. Gregor, I'm, I'm intrigued to know what you think about all of this. Obviously, in the journeyman column, you've visited so many football clubs. You've spoken to chairmen, to managers, players who have been affected by some of the negatives in football over the last, you know, however many years. You, of course, playing the game as well. Suggestions like a wage cap, for example, a salary cap in football uh, are mooted here. Um, and, uh, you know, you wonder whether it would save many football clubs um, to have a cap, maybe, you know, we, we know about FFP, but linked to turnover or maybe just a straight number. And I'm not against that, but I am against... You know, if there is a wage cap and the players can't earn above a certain level, then I think, we, you know, we need profits of a football club to be protected as well. And so the owners don't get, you know, everything that the players aren't getting because ultimately the players, you know, are the ones that we are paying to see. So, um, you know, if, if those changes were to come into effect, given your experience, would that be good or bad? I mean, I, I think this is I think this is good. It's complex. And as Ian has said, it's the its teeth have been blunted. Um, as far as I'm aware, I don't think that the regulator will have any control over FFP uh, wage caps. Um, and as Tom said, the redistribution uh, package for the EFL and, and grassroots is still going to be initially, the, the, well, the, the hope is it's going to be a negotiation, uh, which has been going on for a number of years anyway, So and has been completely unsuccessful um and so unless they have to step in essentially they want that to be agreed within football itself which is kind of wishful thinking um but for for me this ultimately is about protection and as you alluded to there you know visiting clubs like blackpool and portsmouth and bury and macclesfield and the list is endless uh, over the last five or six years that's the most important thing there's there's self-regulation has failed it's people people who you know the free marketeers who howl and wail uh, at this have no idea about the rest of english football they think they point to the premier league and think that you know it's this great unmitigated success when the foundations on which the premier league were built uh, are creaking and cracking and have been for years and so and self-regulation has, has been proved to be a failure. You, you people also are either unaware or forget that the Premier League and the EFL and the National League are members' bodies. They're self-regulating. They so they, they either elect or appoint people to run those bodies. You can't even really call them governing bodies. They're so it, it it's woefully inadequate. And it's as I say, there's so many such so many vested interests, uh, such kind of disparate uh, financial uh, kind of ambitions and, and might within within leagues and within football as a whole, 
it's impossible for for people to come to a consensus about some of the most important things and one of them is protecting football clubs so ultimately there are things it's all going to be in the detail like the licensing system licensing system i like the idea of but i don't like the idea of it being about clubs i like i think that should be about owners and directors because what's the point in threatening to revoke a license for a football club if they're if they're not uh proving themselves to be solvent uh that's going to punish the football club and and its supporters when the the individuals responsible for making them solvent are the people who should who should have the license uh you know, the, one of the things is about, I've just wrote a piece about Southend United who, are the, who, who have got a few days left to find a, close, a couple of million pounds or else they'll be liquidated. And the problem is that they've had the same owner for 25 years and they can't, he's had this dream of building a new stadium and making a lot of money from associated uh, uh, property deals, basically, and building new homes on Roots Hall, the club's home. And he's had that dream for 25 years and he's not letting it go. So they can't get rid of him. So there has to be a way of actually recognizing when a club's best interests are not aligned with an individual or owners. And that's the bit that's been, it's a disappointment for me here. And there's no real, there's no, as as Ian said, there's no teeth. Mm. So it's been rolled back, it's been rolled back upon. And the other, like the last thing is it's, it's all going to come down to money too, because the, the the idea that like people have I got a lot of the free, free marketeers have been re- referencing some of the other things that have been regulated by government and how you know water energy how woefully inadequate it's been it, imagine the money and time and personnel it's going to need to monitor the finances of 92 football clubs issue them with licenses threatening to revoke them if they're not solvent and it's actually covering the national league as well. So to do that on an ongoing basis, and that's just one aspect of of this of the running of the regulator, it's got to have some serious funding. I know the football has money for that, but it's it's gonna it's all gonna be in the detail and how it's run and how successfully it's run. Um but I think fundamentally if there if if the advent of this protect is more likely to protect uh, protect football clubs. If they can do anything to improve the owners and directors test, if they can do anything to prevent clubs like Bury and Macclesfield from going under and others. And I think what I think it said sixty-four I think sixty-four clubs since since the advent of the Premier League have have, be, have gone into administration. So that's two thirds of the football league since the Premier League came into uh have gone have been in, insolvent. If it can do anything to protect clubs from Protect clubs from themselves. That's I've heard. I've heard. But I've heard owners of clubs in the football leagues literally say that to me, like themselves. We need to be protected from ourselves. So if this helps that, then it's a good thing, and I think it might even be a step towards further regulation. We will find out the devil in that detail. Maybe we'll react to that a little bit more next week. This white paper uh, presented to Parliament a little bit later on, but big changes on the way. It seems in domestic English football. Uh, up next, we will talk about the first domestic English final of the season in the Carabao Cup as Manchester United and Newcastle go head-to-head. Stay with us.
At Wembley this weekend, we have the Carabao Cup final. Newcastle United under Eddie Howe eyeing the first major domestic trophy since 1955. And Manchester United without silverware since 2017 under their new boss, Eric Ten Hag. So many subplots to this. Um, and it's going to be a great final, I'm sure, in front of a full house at Wembley. I'll be in the Royal Box. See you there. At Newcastle, haven't won any of their last three games. Two wins and two draws in the last four for Manchester United. I feel like this is a very evenly matched contest, despite Newcastle's form slipping a little bit of late. Tom, is is it too tough to call? I don't know. You know, I, I sort of feel that if this match had been played a month ago, I think I'd agree with you. Um, I think it would have been a, a real tight game if, if Newcastle were in that kind of form. But I just think in the last two or three weeks, both teams have just gone in opposite directions um, by maybe 20%. You know, United have really found a groove now. Uh, Rashford's form has just been relentless. And on the other side of the coin, Newcastle have just dropped off a little bit. You know, their goal-scoring problems haven't been solved. And what was getting them through before, their extremely tight defence, you know, they're just starting to leak some goals as well. Um, They will have Bruno Gamarish back, which I think is is a huge boost for them. Um, but the goalkeeping situation is obviously a worry. Um, so unfortunate that, that Nick Pope can't play and you know who knows how Carrius is going to react. I personally hope he has an absolute stormer and saves the penalty and that they, and that they, win, the, and they win the cup. But um, there's no doubt that will only add more uncertainty to a defence that has just slightly started to wobble in recent weeks. So I think uh, a few weeks ago, I would have said, you know, maybe 55-45 in United's favour. I now see it more like a sort of 70-30-80-20 game. Gregor, how do you view it? I agree. I think I, I think the Manchester United are in a, a really good place now. Um, as Tom alluded to, Newcastle's defence has been, you know, remarkable this season. Um, it's just kind of a few fissures have, fissures have started to kind of appear and the it's, you can't under, underestimate the kind of confidence too that a goalkeeper gives a, a back four and it's going to be a fascinating subplot of the game to see uh, how Carius how, uh, uh, fares in his first game in, in a long time um, and you know a game of such pressure when the focus will be on him as well and as I say, how that sort of impacts uh, the defence around him but I, I still I, like very much feel that Newcastle could win this. They they have they have match winners. They have players. Uh, Gamara's return is huge because he's someone who can who can sort of exert a lot of control for Newcastle in midfield and dictate the play a little bit. Um, and can spring attacks and is also really sort of punchy defensively as well. Um, so his return is huge, um, but ultimately, I think I think that it's going to be a game that's kind of it's going to be quite low margin, low scoring, um, and I think it it'll, it'll depend upon a kind of the moments like match winners, Marcus Rashford producing a moment as he has done in every game for such a long time now, um, someone like Almiron, some Maximan producing a moment uh, and ultimately whether the team can kind of whether, I think if it's Newcastle, I think Newcastle take the lead it could be about holding on to that lead and they've done it so well in so many games I know we're talking about their defence and it's 
whether it's you know not, it's not been quite as strong of late, but they have on many many occasions held on to leads and low low margin low scoring victories, uh, and sometimes against the big you know against big teams and and goalless draws. They've you know against Arsenal, uh, for example, they kind of. They had that low block with a threat on the counter attack, and I think probably that's going to be the way that they will they will approach this game because they do have threats on the counter attack. Um, I think it's really hard to call, but as I say, just my natural instinct is is pointing towards Manchester United because they are in such a good place, and Newcastle. A few things have just started to go wrong in the last couple of weeks, not drastically, but just um, you know marginal things that could be the difference on the day. Ian, do you, do you agree with that? Uh, yes, yeah, I, I, I do broadly agree. I, I, it, 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 it's, it's a nice, uh, refreshing final, isn't it? Which is a funny thing to say about, um, you know, two traditional big clubs. But, um, uh, you know, we haven't seen Newcastle in the final for a very long time. And Manchester United um, have not won a trophy for longer than they're comfortable with. And, and, and uh, two... Two very interesting coaches as well. What whoever comes out of this on top, it, it's going to be you know a real, a real watershed for for the managers and for where the where the clubs see themselves going from from here on. Um, I, I I agree with with Gregor and and and, and Tom that the the issue of the goalkeeper is does seem even more fundamental to. To Newcastle, given that the, their foundation for what has been a very successful season, um, a lot of it has been that that very very well organised defence and and an outstanding goalkeeper Nick Pope behind them. So that that is an imponderable, and it and it's you know it's a test for the back four in front of him, and then a test for for Eddie Howe. Um, and you know that both teams will be and both managers will be very excited that Hugh's watching from the Royal Box. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say that if uh, Man United win, it is my explicit desire to celebrate just in the chair beside Amanda Stavely, to be perfectly honest. You, you guys know how loud I am. I'll be making my presence felt, shall we say. Um, no, in seriousness. I, I think Manchester United do have a, a good chance of winning this game. And of course, we're talking on Thursday morning. So it will be intriguing to see how the, the, you know, the second leg against Barcelona in the Europa League affects their plans, um, uh, you know, I'd love to see them be two goals up, three goals up and take off their best players and save them for the weekend. I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, I do think it's huge for both clubs. Of course, bigger for, for Newcastle United, but um, for both clubs, it, it takes quite similar context in terms of setting the tone for what is to come over the next few seasons. Um, we've seen this trophy, you know, spark some clubs back into life remind them about the winning culture. Both of these managers want to forge that, both tactically very astute. Um, some very good players on show. You know, no reason for either club to not feel confident that they can go and win this match the way that they've played so far this season. And the atmosphere will be incredible. Um, it will be absolutely fantastic. And that's the only disappointment for me that I won't be kind of sitting in the middle of the fans uh, for this one because, you know... You don't want to be in the prawn sandwiches, do you? Let's be honest. But um, I'll take a ticket wherever I can get one. Had to scrimp and save for this one. So you know what, you know how it is. Um, 
but yeah, listen, gentlemen, thank you so much for talking uh, to me about this game and, and about the other stories today. Um, we, of course, will react at length to that cup final on Sunday between Manchester United and Newcastle. I've got to ask you very quickly for your predictions, Gregor. Narrowly, Manchester United. I, you know, I know I spoke about Newcastle's defence. I don't want to make too big a deal of that. They went, they were 2-0 down against Liverpool in the last game and uh, then had the man sent off and still held on and still held their own. And before that, we're talking about one-all draws against Bournemouth and Newcastle. Their defence is still, you know, remarkably solid. And as I say, just that little bit of doubt about the goalkeeper and the irresistible form that Manchester United are in. They were, they were brilliant against Barcelona as well. Um, I just think that they might edge it, just have a little bit more quality. Um, but it'll be narrow, very tight. Ian? Uh, uh, yes, broadly agree with, with Gregor, as usual. Um, uh, Manchester United to win, Newcastle to score, uh, the outcome only to be settled in the last 15 minutes. Okay, all right. An intriguing final on the way. Make sure you're listening on Monday for your, all of our reaction to that, if you like. But um, yeah, looking forward to the first Wembley final of the season. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Tom Allnut, Ian Hawkey, thank you very much for being with me. Thank you all for listening. Um, we, of course, during the recording of this programme, have learned of the sad news of the passing of John Motson. So on Monday, I promise you, we will uh, talk about Motti in some detail as well. Uh, make sure you stay tuned for that. And of course, I'm sure some great tributes on The Times uh, over the course of the weekend. So download The Times app. Make sure you pick up a newspaper for that. And we will see you on Monday. If you'd like to subscribe to the game out each and every Monday, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll see you soon.